0: Joe, thank you, Joe. What's to me, my name is Sadi, my am alcoholic. Okay. Ooh, very grateful I haven't had a drink today, and um, it's, it is. I've heard lots of people say, and it is an honour, uh, and a privilege to sit up here and, and do a chair. And um, I, can't, I hand on heart, whatever I say will be honest. Not everything's original. Most things have been learned from my elders. My story's my own. And um, like I said, I'm going to be honest. I'm not, I'm not one of those guys who, who will sit here and say, I'm grateful I'm an alcoholic. I'm not. I don't like this disease. In fact, I despise it. It's kind of baffling as powerful, as we know. And um, it takes people's lives to, Therefore, I don't like it. But what I am is I'm extremely grateful that I've been shown a way to live with my demons, to live with my disease, to accept it, and um, be shown another way to live, you know? you know, without indulging in the substance alcohol itself. And that's all I ever wanted when I first came in. You know, I just wanted to stop drinking and... And Alcoholics Phenomeness has most definitely done that for me. Um, um, Going back off my history, I'm in the middle of two other brothers, no sisters. And I can't speak on my brother's behalf. They should be in these rooms themselves. Uh, This is a family disease, and uh, my family's riddled with alcoholism. I'm the only one who's recovery, and uh, I tend to stay. And I can't tell you or explain to you why we we become alcoholic. All I can tell you is I am one. You know, I'm, uh, my mother and father come from India. They worked really, really hard. to provide for three sons. And we were basically, all three of us were Naughty little fuckers, to put it brightly. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean. And um, mm-hmm. my, my, my mother's elder sister, she's got three sons as well, and we were always compared to them. And, you know, when you go and visit their house and saw the, the three brothers, there's proud photos of them on the wall from, uh, with gowns and scrolls and mm-hmm. university degrees. And me and my brothers, you know, criminal records and prison uniforms <laughs> and just fucking bear shaped no, naughtiness, you know, and uh, we're completely different. And I can't tell you if it's because we were the area we were brought up or, or what it is. We were just, we just went off, off on the rails from the beginning. And as far back as I can remember, uh, I've always been chasing the buzz any sort of buzz. And I am an addict of all sorts. I, you know, I, I will literally take anything if I find out it gives me a high, it gives me a buzz. And I can remember I should say this sentence out uh, quite a lot. I want to get out of my head. So from a very young age, for some reason, I knew I didn't want to live in my head. I didn't like reality. I wanted a buzz. I wanted excitement you know, and, uh, and, I, and I also knew behaving naughty gave me a buzz. So I played up a lot. I was naughty, you know, and 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 I got into a lot of mischief and a lot of trouble, you know. And I stole. I shouldn't have stole. My my parents worked really hard, and you know, we wasn't brought up to steal. And I say we, me and my brothers, we're all the same. We all done the same sort of things. And um, you know, I was inhaling uh lighter fluid you know, in my, when I was about 10 years old and sniffing petrol and gases and pe- polishes and lacquers. hence so I was in the woodwork class and in the metalwork class, so you could get all these substances. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was really high as a kite. And uh, uh, i tell you the truth, I hated it, because I was very, really, really there. When I did go, it was just mischief and trouble and, and getting the buzz, you know, and, um, My brother, who was six years older than me, so when he was 16, he was introducing cider to me and my younger brother, who's a year younger. So we were drinking at quite a young age, you know, and I I loved the effect of alcohol. And um, my father drank as well, so it weren't like it was a no-no, you can't drink in our house. So um, my first drunk, I can remember it very well as well. Well, I got physically so, so sick. I thought, I'm never going to touch this again. And it was Bacardi, my dad's drink. And, you know, Bacardi and vodka, it looks like water, in it. it? It looks clear and it looks, what does it look It looks like nothing. I'll try some of that. I was always curious what my elders were drinking. So I knocked back loads and I was so sick uh, to the point where I thought I was going to die. I thought, I'm never going to touch that again. And I never did touch spirits for quite a long time. But I, I kept dabbling with lager. I was a lager drinker and I started smoking joints at school and uh, I started rebelling. And I'm, um, yeah, I kind of like let my parents down, you can say. And my dad wanted us to have an education, but I weren't interested in education. I wanted excitement and hence I, got, I went out of school and I found it. You know, and um, before I even hit 16, I was told to leave school because of my behaviour. So um I was thrown out of school and I and and I got a job. I got a job straight away in a factory and uh in in Acton and um and I got my first wage packet. I don't know if you get wage packets these days, but <laughs> back then you got a little packet and you got loads of money in it and it was less of a party, you know, and, and and that's what I'd done, I wanted to party, you know, I wasn't an unhappy child, you know, I just wanted excitement, I wanted a buzz, I wanted, like, oh, I wanted a party and that's what I'd done, I, I partied really hard and my favourite drink was my breakfast drink, as soon as I woke up, I wanted a drink, and I drank because I knew it made me feel good. Why not drink the stuff? But I knew nothing about this um, uh, vocabulary-like allergy back then, you know? But I, oh, I used to say, if back then at 16, once I get the taste, I've had it. So that's kind of like the same thing as an allergy. Once I get the taste, I know I'm going to have another one and another one and another one. And, and I, that's what was happening. I, I had it because, <laughs> because I was drinking as soon as I woke up. And I was on a bus at 7 in the morning with a can of lager in my hand, big, fat Bob Marley's fliff. And uh, I was having a party on the back of the bus, you know, and uh, everybody else was minding their own business with newspapers and reading and all this stuff. And I was like, look at me. I'm so cool. I'm having the party. You lot are boring. You know, and uh, I knew what I was doing were not right no one else was doing it, but I thought I was special and different, and that's why I drank. Because I wanted to be special and different. I loved the buzz, and by about nine o'clock, or even before then, my alcohol meter is starting to slowly, slowly go down, and I'm starting to slow down, and I need a top up, and and that's basically why I'm telling you this story. Is that's the kind of alcoholic I had become. I was a top up drinker, and. Um, I I don't know any other way of drinking. You know, I just don't. And I'll drink and I'll top up until my head hit the pillow and I went to sleep and I'll wake up and i do the same shit over and over again. You know, and and, um, before I even hit 20, I started to notice when I woke up in the morning, I had the jitters. And I'd be shaking, sweating, suffering from a bit of anxiety. And I knew that once i get that can of lager down me, all those symptoms are going to be taken away. All those withdrawals that was caused by alcohol in the first place, which is insanity in itself. You know, having to drink that same substance to take away the stuff that is causing me these problems. And... um yeah, so alcohol from getting up and let's have a party, let's have a buzz, become I need a fucking drink to take away this shit. Cause I don't feel right. And as soon as I had one or two, I felt brilliant again. And then it was let's have some more. You know, and uh well, drinking I thought was quite exciting and you know, I've got loads of stories to tell you, but it was quite fucking boring, you know. I mean, I just drank nonstop every single day. You know what I mean? And certain events took place, like getting arrested, you know, and getting put in police station for my own safety because I couldn't get home safe because I was so drunk. You know, I'm uh, blacking out and not remembering how I got into a police station. You know, all that sort of stuff was happening to me. But, you know, those sort of consequences weren't that bad. You know, I thought it's just part of having a party, isn't it? And just got on with it. And... um cut a long story short, by the age of 26, um, by this time I'm just, you know, hardly working, very ill. I'd just been thrown out of a hospital, in fact, out of um, my local hospital for uh, a spinal injury. And I couldn't walk and I got hospitalized and, the consultant asked me how much do you drink and I said I was shocked and said what do you want about drinking I'm here for my back I've always been proud of how much alcohol I could drink and I said I drank about 10 candelago and a bottle of gin I was drinking back then and they took me upstairs to a ward and started pumping me up with loads and loads of medication and because I knew I was so addicted and the, dependent on alcohol. I had a friend bringing me up drink every single day. And eventually the nurses got me on a Zimmer frame and helped me start walking around. My mate never turned up, hence I got in the lift, went all the way down, crossed the main road, went at the off license, got a drink, came back in. And back then you could, there were smoke rooms. I was sitting in the smoke room and I was drinking rum and I offered it to a few other patients, which I shouldn't have, okay. because they got really ill. And uh, all I can remember is about three in the morning, two nurses on both sides escorted me back to my bed. I was so, so drunk. I don't know what the hell happened that day. And the next morning, my consultant came around and done a ward round and told me to pack my bags and said, You're discharged. And they threw me out of the hospital. And I said, Why? I can't even walk properly. And he says, you're not meant to be drinking on the premises. And he goes, secondly, you were drinking on top of a detox. Now, I didn't even know they were giving me a detox. Hence, that's why he asked me, how much do you drink? They were giving it giving to it me so I don't have a fit or get really ill. And I didn't even, no wonder I was in complete cuckoo land. I was, it was zombified. I was drinking on top of a detox. And, um, and, you know, they weren't having any of my behavior, and they threw me out. So uh, I was thrown out and, and, you know, obviously my family's not happy with me. And 10 days after being thrown out, I wake up about noon. Uh, I've been sessioning all night. And I go to have the cure, the morning drink, even though it's afternoon. And by this time, I've graduated to cans of very str- extra strong, super-duper lager. <laughs> These guys know what it is. And um, I'm trying to knock back a can, and I spew some out. It's happened loads of times. I forced more black inside me, and I kept spewing it out, and I forced more inside until it sits in my stomach and everything yabba dabba Do again. And this particular day, I never had the yabba-dabba-doo. It was just fucking constant puking until there's no more alcohol to puke out. In fact, there's nothing left to puke out. And it turns to dry heaving. So, so powerful. It feels like my stomach's going to jump out of my mouth. And I'm just dry heaving, and it has become viciously loud. I'm scared now. I'm sweating my ass off. I'm on my knees. And I just can't stop. Making a noise, and there's just splatters of blood going everywhere, and I'm scared now. I kind of like, no, I'm dying, and um, i very, very lucky. My missus was indoors. She was just about to go out, leave the house, to go and pick pl- pick up my children from playgroup, or drop them off one or the other. I can't remember. But, uh, she had one look at me. She was angry with me because I got thrown out of hospital. But she had one look at me and called an ambulance straight away. And because she had to pick up the children, she called my mother and father who didn't live that far away. And they basically came and followed the ambulance to my local hospital. And they took me back in. And um, it was really embarrassing because I had to go back to the ward. I got thrown off because there was no other bed in the hospital. And I could have died, you know what I mean? Just with embarrassment. I was in so much pain. And... Um, I was diagnosed with this condition called acute pancreatitis. I didn't know what a pancreas was. All I knew was my stomach was about to fucking blow up. If you put a pin to my stomach, I would have gone up to space. It was that tight and that inflamed. And I was in so much pain. And mm-hmm. um, they started administering this wonderful drug called pefidine. And that shut me up. So as soon as I woke up, I was screaming again, in pain. And whoever suffered from pancreatitis would know what I'm on about, you know, and uh, any normal person wouldn't ever want to drink again with that. And while I was there, I met another man, a consultant, who came and spoke to me and explained to me what's happening to me. And he said that your pancreas is inflamed so much, you're lucky we caught you in time. Uh, they put me on nearby mouth for over a month. Didn't eat or drink. Well, I couldn't, I, in the beginning I didn't want to anyway, but I couldn't eat or drink anything for a whole month to wait for the organ to go back down to some considerable size, normality. And while I was there, they explained to me what a pancreas was. It produces a hormone called insulin. Yours is so badly damaged and scarred, you've become diabetic. Uh, we have to teach you how to inject insulin. So they put me on insulin injections. And then while I was there, obviously, I've got loads of time. I'm sitting around doing nothing but lying in a bed. A lady from drug and alcohol services came to visit my bed and started chatting to me. And it's the first time ever I've talked to someone from the professional field of alcoholism or drug addiction. And and I had no problem saying I'm an alcoholic. I love drinking. I drink every day. I can't get enough of it. But I've learned my lesson. Don't ever want to see that fucking stuff again. You know, it nearly killed me. I didn't. I didn't want to die. I wanted to live. I wanted to party. I didn't want to die. It was all a bit of a shock. And um, and she goes to me. Do you mind if I speak to you and have a meeting with you tomorrow? I want to you to meet someone. Um, I'd like it if your parents are there and your wife is there and there's no problem. So the next day, there's about eight to ten people all looking down on me and discussing my discharge and discussing my life. Like, I'm not even lying. I'm getting a bit pissed off now. i thinking, you know, this is all about me and no one's asking me what I want. And they're all talking about treatment, this, this and that and all that. And I go, listen, I go, I've learned my lesson. I'm never going to drink again. I don't ever want to see another drink again. And the lady I spoke to the day before said to me, you told me you're an alcoholic. I go, yeah. And she goes, well, I've met people like you. When you leave the hospital bed, you forget what happens and you pick up again. So she knew more about untreated alcoholism than I did. But because I knew myself so well and I was being deadly honest, I go, you- have you ever had pancreatitis? Have you ever lied here? Have you ever nearly fucking died from drinking? No, I have, and I know I'm not going to drink again. And uh, while all this commotion's going on, this other lady that she brought to the meeting jumped in the conversation and said, We have got funding for you, and we've got a bed for you for six months, for which I said, Six fucking months, you must be joking. I'm a busy man, I've got things to do, then I'll leave this place. And uh, my dad was standing there and he goes, please take it for six years, do something with this guy. So I'm arguing with my parents now and saying, You shut the fuck up. I don't want to go anywhere. And I've got them not pushing me, and there's me lying there, and it felt like everybody was against me. And I'm getting pressurized into doing something I don't want to do. And you know, this lady who was offering me this bed in a rehab said it's in Western Supermare. Now, for anyone who doesn't know where Western Supermare is, it's in the west of England and um sorry it's in the east of England isn't it no no it is the west and um it's a seaside resort and that's the only thing that made me change my mind so for believe it or not it was 27 years ago in February that I was in this hospital bed when I'm, this conversation was happening and I thought, Easter's coming up. It would be nice to go to Western mm-hmm. Superman, sit by the beach and watch the waves come in and eat mm-hmm. some ice cream. You know, it'd be, it'd be nice to get away from London. And all I think about was ice cream because my insides were on fire. Mm-hmm. I wanted ice cubes and ice cream. And believe it or not, when I, when, when they took me off nearby mouth, that's the first thing I ordered was ice cream. You know what I mean? I, just, I was obsessed with getting something cold down me. So I thought, let's have a go at this rehab and I decided to go and uh, i got the rudest awakening of my life I got escorted there by train by some social service people and they took me there and he shook my hand and said good luck and off he went into the wilderness and um, I met the other client we were called clients nice name and um, went to sleep that night and then the next day There was a knock on my door about 7 in the morning and everybody's got to get up. And I'm thinking, what's the commotion? What's going on there? And I I couldn't understand what was happening. And and they said, we've all got chores here and and, and newcomers do the Hoover. And I thought, you fucking what? (laughs) Because, you know, I nearly died. I'm a special case here. i just come off my deathbed. I didn't come 100 miles here to fucking (laughs) Hoover. So I started arguing with these people. I weren't having any of it. And I nearly packed my bags and left. You know, and they calmed me down. And it was only, this is the way my, my mind worked back then. It was, I've done, I've done jail time. It can't, it can't be that fucking hard, you know what I mean? And, and the reason why I tell you that is because I thought this is a place where they send people as punishment who drank too much. I didn't realise they were trying to give me a passport out of hell and help me. And I thought it was some sort of boot camp, you know what I mean? Well, it was a bit of a boot camp. It was very regimental. And you had to do a live story there. And they introduced me to this program called the Minnesota Program. And as soon as I heard the Minnesota Program, I thought, here we go. The fucking Yanks are at it again. Mm-hmm. You know what i mean? They're trying to push their shit onto us. And uh, I went along with it and played along with it and ate some food because I knew I had to start eating because I couldn't eat. And I started to get physically well. I started to play football. with some of the other patients there started to go for a few runs along the beach and all that sort of stuff and I physically got really well and while I was there I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. you had to go to meetings so I went to the meetings and, and meetings in Western Super are literally massive because there's a lot of treatment centres there you know and um and there was people that were 20 years sober and, and I couldn't understand why people who are 20 years off the piss are still coming to these meetings. I know today why. I couldn't understand back then. And I thought, you know, these people are boring. They've got nothing better to do. You know what I mean? And, um, and then what really put me off was that little three-letter word, the G word. And, um, and my head just completely went. I thought, why are these not banging on about God? I ain't coming to find God. You know what I mean? I just couldn't understand what was going on. It's not that I'm a non believer. i am mean, not fucking come here to look for God. You know what I mean? I come here to stop drinking. And I couldn't add up the two. And all the meetings were held in churches or halls next to churches. So I thought it was the Christians, and they were trying to turn me into one of them. And no disrespect to any religion, but I thought, I don't even follow my own fucking religion. I'm definitely going to follow yours. So I kind of like just played along with it. And yes, hello, how are you? Drink some tea. And, you know, like I was doing this jail sentence. Well, do the time and get the fuck out of there and get on with my life. So I've done my time, and I've done half my time, in fact. And after three months, I've come back to London. I have a CT scan on my pancreas. So I went home after the scan. I saw my missus and I saw my children. And suddenly out of nowhere, I thought, I don't need any more treatment. I'm staying home now. I'm going to be a good dad and a good partner. And I'm going to look after my family. But I had to go back to West and collect my stuff. And um, I went back. And my counsellor came and spoke to me. There's a few counsellors in there. And he goes, where are you going? And I goes, I'm leaving. And he, he literally begged me to stay. And I goes, I'm not staying, I'm, I'm I'm going, I've had enough. And he goes, you really don't know how sick you are. And I go, stop labelling me, I'm not sick. There's fuck all wrong with me now. And um, I used to put my hands out and say, look, I don't shake anymore. Cause I, I used to shake a lot without a drink. And I thought, look, the shaking stop. I'm well now. There's nothing wrong with me. And he goes to me, well, you're obviously not listening, but when you go to meetings, when you get back to London, sorry, go to meetings. You know, and he talks about it in our book about we need a substitute. And I came back to London and I didn't go to meetings. And I still wanted a buzz. So... And now this is AA, I substitute in drug or alcohol. And uh, this disease progressed so, so fast. I was on heroin very, very quickly. And uh part, long story short, I've become a crackhead, smackhead, killhead, pisshead, pothead, the whole fucking lot. You know, I, I had so many different substance abuse problems with me now. You know, and I only came in here with drinking and now I've got more problems. And, um, you know, they say, if you want your misery, it will be refunded. And they forget to mention times hundred because that's what happened. And it happened very, very quickly. It just all blew up in my face. And to cut a long story short, from 1996 to 2004, eight years, um, I was very ill, couldn't stop using. Had many detox attempts to try to come off all these substances I just told you about. And uh, and I failed miserably each time because once I came out of hospital, I still thought I could do it by myself and I don't need any help from anyone. And when I wasn't in hospital having detoxes, my pancreas got inflame. And I'll be put back in a general ward uh, and I'll be wired up. And I was in extreme pain, you know. And you know, every time I came out of hospital, it didn't even scare me knowing if I pick up a drink, I could die. I, it didn't even scare me anymore. And, um, and I did go into this phase of drinking where I thought, fuck it, I'm better off dead anyway. So here it goes. And... Believe me, I tried really hard to drink myself to death, but it just didn't happen. I'm very lucky and grateful it didn't. And um, near the end of my drinking, which was 2004, the year before that, my best mate, who I used to joke with, and say, what do you call an alcoholic who stops drinking? Dead. Ha, 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 ha. Pop, pop, pop. And we popped hands and knocked them back and laugh, And that's the way we thought we were going to die. And my mate, he died. At the age of 32, he died from pancreatitis. Same thing I had, I couldn't believe it. And um, and then one morning, 5.30, five o'clock in the morning, I've been smoking crack, drinking can and can of, of lager. And um, this question went running through my head, you associate alcohol and drugs with having a party and you're sitting as loathsome all by yourself. And you're fucking depressed. You're not even happy. You're not even content. And it just dawned on me, this shit don't even work anymore. I'm just doing it for the sake of doing it. Because it's so habitual. I've been doing it for so many years. You know, It's second nature. Waking up, having a drink, taking drugs. And I just realized it, it don't even work. It didn't stop me from drinking. But I started to have these sort of thoughts in my head and, um, that I don't want to do this stuff anymore. And I really didn't like what I had become as well. You know, and, um, and the third thing that happened was, was in London, especially things happened by threes for some reason. But um, my missus announced she was pregnant and I was probably the biggest surprise of the lot, because uh, I was hardly ever at fucking home. Mm. And I had this thing called Brewers Droop, I could hardly keep it up. <laughs> but, um, it must have been some blue moon I've snuck in there and uh, I've planted a seed inside her and I can't fucking remember. But miracles do happen and I, and I do believe in Jesus now. But, um, I went back to my key worker. He used to get me a bed in this place called the Max Black unit. And I threw my last dice because by now I was on a methadone script and a drink diary. And they could say to me, and You maintain yourself out in the community, you would rather give a bed to someone who wants to get sober. And my last dice was the missus is pregnant. There's a baby due in June. Please give me another chance. And they only gave me this bed because they actually knew my missus and they were trying to support her through my lunacy. And they got me back into the unit. It was May the tenth, I went and they had clanked up to the eyeballs. I took so many drugs. Like I've done, I've done this so many times. This is my last drink. This is my last drug. This is my last detox. And I went in there smashed out of my head. And um, while I was there, stuff started to happen to me that has never happened before. And one of the things to happen was I couldn't stop breaking down and crying and I couldn't understand what was happening to me I've seen other patients do it in front of me and I just say pull yourself together you're getting so much Librium three meals a day it's brilliant in there what are you crying for and now I'm fucking crying and I couldn't tell you why and I was just having an emotional breakdown and I believe I was having acceptance start to seep in I don't want to be like this anymore And I knew change had to take place, and I knew it was scary. I knew it was difficult, but I was desperate. And um, I misbehaved so much in that last detox that even even I when I look back, my character was out of sorts because they knew me quite well, and they said this guy's gone completely loopy. And I can remember while I was there, I went into my room and um out of sheer desperation i just screamed out and said please god if you're there show me your presence come and help me i've heard so much about you come and fucking help me then and that's the way i done it i challenged i was challenging my higher power come on then like i said i'm not, it's not that i don't believe it's just that i thought i didn't need help from a higher power to put the drink down but by eight years trying to do it by myself. I knew I couldn't do it. I was beyond human aid. And I believe that cry for help, you know, um, was the beginning of the end of my drinking. And there was even an uh, old cleaning lady there. She used to mop around after me all the time. And, and I even said to her, I goes, auntie, I goes, when you go to the temple, i got say a prayer for me. So I'm asking other people to fucking pray for me as well now. You know, and eight years previous, when I was in treatment, I said, God didn't put a drink in my hand and I don't need his help to put it down. And I now know that to be my ego and my pride and, you know, it took eight years of pure humiliation for me to get humble enough to ask for help. And I found that humility because I was desperate and I didn't, like I keep saying, I despised what I had become. So, um. As I said, my behavior was atrocious over there and I was a complete pain in the ass and they couldn't handle me anymore. And they threw me out of detox. I was coming to the end of my my um, treatment, i.e. they were taking, they were weaning me off all the Librim and Subutex and all this other shit I was on. So they threw me out and there's an off-bite. It's my opposite of the hospital, and I thought, don't go into the office, just get home. And I managed to get home. I didn't go into the off-license, and I shut the door, and I thought, thank God, I'm home. And like a true alcoholic, I'm fucking like a magnet. I just zoomed in on this bottle of wine that was in my house. You know, and I've had so many detoxes. I'm an expert by now. I used to drink my house dry to make sure there's no booze in the house. And there's a bottle of wine in the house. I've still got no defense against the first drink and I poured it all into a pint glass and I washed it down with loads of medication. And that was my last drink. And um, and I thank God today that that bottle of wine was in my house. It was there for a reason. I know in the book it says to drink is to die, but that day it saved my ass. Because it stopped me from going out to the off-license and buying my Kansas Ford Super or I scored some heroin and crack, and I'll be dead now. I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be sitting here. I know that for a fact. I was very underweight. I was very unnourished. I was a dead man walking. There was nothing left of me. You know, so that bottle of wine kept me indoors. And then the day after, with the help of my dad, God rest his soul, he's no longer with us. Thank God he managed to see one of his sons get sober. I'm... He took me to this clinic and he paid a couple of grand and I got an implant inserted into my stomach and it worked for about six months. You can't use heroin. If you use heroin, you get really, really ill. So I knew for six months, I can't use any of that stuff. And then I laid low for another day or two and I went unattended. Because normally you get attend. normally nurses bring you down to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous at the hospital. I went unattended by myself, my own will. I went to this meeting in the hospital. And they say resentment is the number one offender. You know, a drink has saved my life and a resentment has saved my life because it was a resentment that made me go to the hospital because I wanted because I'm a plastic gangster mm-hmm. and I-, I want revenge with this nurse for throwing me out. <laughs> the only reason why I went to the meeting and I thought I'd better- I'll get him at this meeting. So I went along to this meeting. I've got steam coming out of my ears. I want to kill people. And the patients are coming down. And I go, Where's where's the nurse? And they goes It's his day off. And I'm looking around, kicking chairs now. I think, what the fuck am I doing here? I'm really anti-AA. I don't like AA. It's not for me. You know what I mean? I don't like this god crap. And uh I turn around to the top table, and I see this sign there. There's a man and a woman sitting there, they were good friends of mine today, and there's a sign there saying, learn to listen and listen to learn. And they slapped me right in between the eyeballs. I thought, for once in your life, why don't you try bloody listening? Listen out for the similarities and not the differences. And there was a lady who was about to do a chair like I was now, and she goes, I put alcohol and men before my children identified with the alcohol bit, not the men bit. (laughs) Um, That was a massive wake up call. And it embarrassed the hell out of me because eight years previous, my counselor said the same thing to me. Basically, this is the textbook stuff of what an alcoholic is, selfish and self-centered. And that's what they were saying. And I was like, how fucking dare you? I love my children. But this is how AA works. One alcoholic, sharing their truth, and the other one identifying with them. Whereas when you've got professional people pointing fingers at you and accusing you and criticizing you, my back goes up against the wall. I get defensive. I go into denial and I say, it's not me, don't fuck yourself. Well, I identified with this lady and something happened to me in that, in that meeting. And I didn't quite know what happened. And uh, I had this thing called the ready break feeling. I felt this glow or the Star Trek beam me up Scotty. Something fucking happened, magical. I knew I was saved. And I'm very grateful it happened instantly because I don't think I would have stuck around. And I went up to another member and I said, something just happened to me. I need another hit because I'm greedy." Mm -hmm. Where's the next meeting? And I was told the next meeting is the same day in my hometown Greenford on a Sunday evening. And I went to it and i just the big book was there. So once I did read this book, I found out what happened to me. I said, exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what I call vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are phenomenal. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to on one side, and a completely new set of conceptions and motives beginning to dominate them. And that's what happened to me. My obsession to get pissed and drugged out of my head was lifted, and I didn't even know. I got obsessed with fucking meetings and going away. And I met someone who actually 12 when I was in hospital and spoke to me, and I talked to talk to him about this, um, um, this God stuff. He said, you've got nothing to worry about. He goes, we're not religious. Religion is for people. I don't want to go to hell. AA is for people that have been there. And I like that. You know what I mean? And it, this guy, he was, he, I believe God sent him as well because he said everything that a rebellious alcoholic like me wanted to listen to. You know, and he used to come out with one nine and was like, there's no head men. There's only head cases and I absolutely loved that and he goes, say, you don't have to do fuck all if you don't want to do anything in AA it's entirely up to you we just suggest you come to loads of meetings many meetings make it possible. few make it odd and none make it impossible go to loads of meetings and he said stuff like, grateful alcoholics don't drink and uh, spirituality is practicality you can do the practical things. Grateful alcoholics do service. And I thought, I'll show them how grateful I am. I'll become a service junkie. I went absolutely mad and started saying, I'll do the tea, I'll do the setting up, I'll do this, I'll do that. And I took up loads of service commitments. And um, I absolutely loved doing service. So I was told it's a program of action and don't bang on about it. gratitude, show it. And these are by my elders. And I thought people who were sober, who were around a long time, doing service. So I followed suit. You know, and uh, because my head was completely frazzled, um, I didn't jump on the steps straight away. I didn't jump into the big book straight away. In fact, I found all this stuff very scary and thought I didn't really need to do it. You know, and, uh, and I thought I was special and different. I thought I don't really need it. Because I looked at the steps and I thought, I've got step one. I'm completely powerless. My life's unbearable, unmanageable. I totally get it. Don't fucking drink. Go to meetings and do service. And that's what I've done in my early days. And I thought, I don't need to do the in-between. All I need, I've got step 12, because I've had the spiritual awakening, because I'm special and different. All I need to do is go out there and save the world now. and That's what I've done, honestly. You know, they say, you've got to give it away to keep it. I was giving it away to people who didn't want it. (laughs) <laughs> you, know what I mean? but, um, <laughs> you know, all this stuff about, you know, <clears throat> I haven't got a message, I'm not blowing my trumpet, but I've done a lot of service, and without touching a big book for doing steps, you know, I've brought, introduced quite a few people to this, to this fellowship, you know what I mean? So you don't have to be an expert to go and pass the message on to other people. And uh, one of the best services I ever done was that at three months off the piss, I met the person who was the coordinator who used to take people into the unit I'd got thrown out of. I was desperate to get back in there to piss these people off threw me out. And I got a commitment there, and it was to take the meeting. And I went there one night, and the manager saw me, and he said, he looked at his watch and he goes, It's eight in the morning, we admit people, not eight in the evening. And I goes, I've come to do a meeting. I ain't coming as a patient. And they just couldn't believe it that like, this guy hasn't drank. And uh, they took me into the office and they made me blow into the breathalyzer. And it came up zero, zero, zero. And it was the most proudest moment I've ever had in my life. Because I used to want to go in there and blow those things up. You know, so I've got the biggest high count alcohol camp and uh, I, I love that service I've done it for over 10 years and going back a little bit two weeks into my recovery only two weeks I was bagging out the serenity prayer God grant me serenity and my missus gave birth to a little boy I'd always wanted and um, I named my son Shanti which in Hindi Punjabi Urdu means peace Serene, calm, and uh, this ain't a punchline, but he doesn't live up to his name. That's <laughs> um, no fault of his own, you know, he's a lovely kid. And at the age of three, my son got cancer. And, uh, and believe me, that would make a normal person drink, never mind an alcoholic. And this disease came back to bite my ass. It was all the poor me's and I've got a resentment with my higher power. Is this why you fucking got me sober for? And, you know, I was just really pissed off. But uh, elder members put their arm around me and said, say, you're going to be all right. Don't forget, we're grateful we're sober. You could be there for your family. You could be there for your son. You know, and uh, I was there with my son. And when he had his first lot of chemo, His consultant sat me and his mother down and said, your son's in remission. He's got more treatment. Let's just hope he doesn't relapse. When I heard that word relapse, I thought, fuck me. All I've got to do is come to AA, do some service, tell the truth, and I won't relapse and die from this disease. But my son's got no choice. I've got a choice today, and that choice is I come to AA and I treat this illness with a program. with um, fellowship and service. And my son did relapse. And uh, and we're very lucky, he's still alive. My my daughter donated a bone marrow and, um, and he's still alive with us today. And we ended up in that hospital for quite a long time. My son lost his hearing, so he's partially deaf. He's got an implant now. So the cancer grew in his head. You know, and me and my wife, have been we had them back trying to get into suitable schools. Uh, teach children who are partially deaf or deaf and uh, we've been to tribunals and fought local authorities and you know managed to get my son into decent schooling you know and um, and daddy didn't need a drink and that's the miracle of it all you know what I mean I I stuck close to the rooms. I still kept my service commitments and I was there at the hospital every other day Sleeping there, looking after my son, you know, and um, my son is now eighteen and in uni, and um, yeah, he's doing really well. Uh, going back to resentment, it was a resentment that made me get on this program and start working the program. I was so angry with someone, and somebody showed me in the columns how to do it. And then he goes to me, put that all to one side. And he goes, what part have you got to play with it? And I thought, what are you on about? I ain't played no part. And he goes, well, have you ever behaved like that? And I said, well, yeah, I have. And he goes, well, you're self-righteous, you're dishonest, you're prideful, you're intolerant. And he chopped this resentment down into little pieces. And that was a revelation because it made me realise I'm carrying so much baggage around with me you take inventory and I managed to take inventory, I found a closed mouth friend, I don't like using the word sponsor but I found a closed mouth friend, trusted closed mouth friend who's still my friend up to today and I offloaded everything on him and um, shared all my secrets, I've got nothing to hide today And I can remember leaving his house one day after sharing everything and I was hopping and jumping and saying I'm liberated, I've got freedom now, I'm not a of my secret, everything's brilliant and about two weeks later I fucking crashed. And I felt like a bag of shit and I couldn't understand why because I heard so much about this part of the programme. And I talked to my friend about it and I said why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? He goes, say all you've done is admit the nature of your wrongs, you're still a fucking prick, you need to change. For fucking more work. And that's when the changing steps, or people like to call them sometimes the unforgettable steps, step six and seven. You know, and uh, ask my defects to be removed. And I pray every day, I ask for them to be removed, you know, but I'm a human being, I make mistakes, things fuck up. And, um, and I'm my own worst enemy and my own worst critic. You know what I mean? When I get, when I do something wrong, I can beat the shit out of myself. And a good friend of mine passed who away, passed away last year sober, he used to say to me, write this down and keep this in your pocket and whenever you mess up, get it out and read it. And it goes like this. I'm not what I'd like to be. I'm not what I could be. But so thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm not what I used to be. And I needed older people to show me this sort of stuff, because all I would have done is beat the crap out of myself. And slowly, slowly, it's learned me to accept who I am. You know, and, uh, and like I said, eventually I managed to make amends. I'm very grateful I managed to make amends to my dad before he died. And his, his only wish was, can you sort your brothers out? And uh, and that's a whole different board game. I mean, it's one thing, learning your own powerlessness. To learn somebody else's powerlessness is very painful. In fact, I think it's even more painful. Because I brought my older brother to meetings. I introduced him to the fellowship. Someone took him under his wing and took him to meetings. And then come near Christmas time, he goes to me, he's just going to smoke a bit of heroin, drink a bit of booze. I'll see you in the new year. And the new year went by. And uh, come the summer, he's still out there. And in a blackout, he poured petrol on his head and he lit a match and went up in a fireball. And how he lived is beyond belief. He was in a coma for over three months in Chelsea and Westminster Burns unit. And as soon as he woke up out of the coma, his first thought was, Give me a cigarette and a drink. I'll beg them to section him, they wouldn't section him, and they eventually released him, and he carried on drinking, and I managed to get him in a treatment centre, he drank there, I brought him back to meetings in West London, half his heart was on his face and on his head, from all the skin grafts, he was was really badly damaged, and I was dropping him off one day after a meeting, and he goes to me and says, I just want to die. He goes, I can't bear looking at myself. I can't bear thinking about what I've done to myself. I just want to die. And I go, if that's what you choose to do, I can't stand around and watch it. It's too painful. And I backed off and I actually started going to our sister fellowship, Alon, to deal with his powerlessness. So I kind of, you know, Alfie thinks, well, I've got sober, now you can get sober as well. Well, I did anyway. And I could learn a whole new lot of powerless over people, places and things, you know, and to cut a long story short, my brother died one night before his 57th birthday, and um, the palliative team were there, and they said, what's your last wishes, and he goes, whiskey, that's yeah. what he could matter, give me some whiskey, you know, and, and, and he said he, he's not with us anymore, you yeah. know, and um, so I, I, I've been on both sides of this disease, You know, I have dished it out, which is a lot easier than fucking receiving it, believe me. And that's why family members who live with these like myself, they need gold medals to put up with me and what I put people through. You know, oh my gosh, it was so, so painful going through what I went through with my brother. It it, it still brings a shiver down my spine, you know, and uh, don't wish it upon anyone. But uh, I tried my damn hardest with him and so did most of the fellowship people in my area to try to help him, but it just wasn't to be, you know, and I kind of like conducted his funeral and done a eulogy and I shared the truth because he died from drinking, you know what I mean, because that's what happened, you know, and... um, my Younger brother, who's a year younger than me, I've tried introducing him to the fellowship. But uh, every time I get close to him or I, or I introduce a member to him, I'm all right now, there's nothing wrong with me, you know. So at the moment, we're not really on speaking terms, I wish things could be better. But you know, I, I can't be around the disease anymore, it makes me ill being around other ill people, you know what I mean. Hence, I say I'm grateful I'm in recovery and I've been sown a design of living that would stop me from killing myself with drink. But it doesn't necessarily mean I'm grateful to be an alcoholic. I'm fucking not. I don't like this disease. I've got no reason to be grateful for having a debilitating, disgusting disease. You know, and I try to keep this monster this addiction addictive monster you know um underwater so i can breathe but um sometimes it comes out and lashes at me with its tail and that's to tell me that i'm always there the monster is always there it's not going anywhere hence i like to call myself recovering alcoholic i will never be recovered I don't know the fuck what it says in the big book. Uh, that's just my opinion. You know, and I'll tell you why. I've got reasons why. You know, I, I've, I've had a cold this week, you know, and uh, my first thought was a hot toddy will take this away. Mm-hmm. I don't have hot toddies. I have fucking bottles of rum and brandy and scotch with hot water and honey. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. My missus, he had the same cone, same symptoms. He went and got some paracetamol and some cough mixture. I want hot fucking toddies. Obviously, I haven't had one, but that's what my first thought was. When my son was diagnosed with cancer, my first thought wasn't I'm sober, I'm gonna be there for my son. It was for me, I need a fucking bowl. I didn't do it, but that's what my first thoughts were. They were alcoholic thoughts. So you know, even though I haven't drank for nearly 19 years, this shit is still lingering underneath, beneath the surface. So I come to reg- regular meetings to keep it out of bed, you know, and That's not saying I, I, I live a white knuckle sobriety because I can't drink, I can't drink. I can open my fridge today and there's bottles of cider, bottles of wine, bottles of champagne in my house. Because my children drink, my wife drinks. Those alcoholic drinks ain't jumping out of the fridge and kicking shit out me and saying, you have to drink me. It's over. A day at a time, I don't need to pick up that first drink. And that's only because I come to meetings and I try to live the AA way of life. And um, I hope I've made some sense. Thank you for the invite. And I'll pass it over to you, though. Thank you.